Welcome back to the program. Last week, President Obama, in addressing the issue of Syria, talked about America's unique role in the world. Russian President Putin would go on to criticize the idea of American exceptionalism. The fact is that Obama's commitment to and Putin's criticism of America's place in the world has its roots in the ideas of our 28th president, Woodrow Wilson, inaugurated 100 years ago. In urging Congress to enter World War I, Wilson talked about the need to make the world safe for democracy. In so doing, he perhaps inadvertently laid the predicate for the next century of U.S. foreign policy and an idealism that often went beyond America's direct national interests. He would come to define the modern activist presidency and would lay the groundwork for a broader role of the federal government. He did it all coming to office with a minimum of political experience, accusations of elitism, racism, and a disregard for civil liberties. He still ranks as one of our great presidents. The how and why of this is embedded in A. Scott Berg's sweeping biography of Wilson, 13 years in the making. A. Scott Berg is a best-selling biographer, a winner of the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, and it is my pleasure to welcome Scott Berg back to this program to talk about Wilson. Scott Berg, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Great to have you back. One of the things that is so remarkable about Wilson is how little political experience he had coming into the presidency, and beyond that, how rapid his political rise really was. No question about it. It's, it is the most meteoric rise in American history. Uh, he might argue and say he had some political history because he spent some 25 years in academia as a college professor and a college president, and he used to joke that the reason he ran for office was to get out of politics. <laughs> in fact, though, much of his education, much of his understanding of how the system worked and of how politics works really came out of his, his background as an educator, as an academic. No question about it. And, and in fact, no, no man arrived in the White House as well-informed about the American political system as Woodrow Wilson. He's our only president with a Ph.D. He had written a dozen books of American history, biography, and more to the point, several books on the actual mechanics of government, most specifically Congress. So he was, he was really America's leading expert on, on American politics by the time he arrived. What nobody counted on was the fact that he really did have superb political instincts. Everyone thought he would just be a pushover of this rather dusty academician, but in truth, he turned out to have uh, sharp elbows and a, and a pretty sharp eye. And a pretty clear vision initially as it related to domestic politics and a progressive agenda that he came in with, which was very clear, clearly defined in, in his campaign. There's no question about it. He arrived with the agenda all in order. He knew just where he wanted to go. He ran on a very specific campaign of progressivism with a half dozen measures he hoped to see enacted. And once he got in, he was like a steamroller. And he did it in a way that the United States and certainly the Congress had never seen before. It was a new kind of presidential activism, and he really redefined the role of the president and the way in which the president functions. 
There were two things that seemed to be going on, on on parallel tracks, and in many ways they really affected the country in similar ways. One, the degree to which he was an activist president, but also the way he tried to redefine the scope and the responsibilities of the federal government. Exactly, and the very thing that uh, he did in expanding the scope of the federal government came from the impulse that actually turned him into a progressive. And it was it was a moment when he realized, this is before he ran for the presidency, that America was not a level playing field. And it occurred to him, who had always believed that the least government was the best government, uh, that that could no longer apply in early 20th century politics because the system had been gamed, he felt, by a half dozen mostly East Coast bankers who really controlled not only the whole economy of the country, but really controlled the Congress because they either had friends or relatives or people or senators they had bought off there. And so Wilson came in with this progressive agenda of things not to wipe out big business. He didn't have a problem with big business. He had a problem with corruption in big business and an unfair system. And so almost every measure he passed in what came to be known as the new freedom was really about economic freedom and about giving every American a fair shake. It's interesting that he had this progressive agenda and was trying to do this even at the same time he was often criticized as being an elitist. Uh, he was often criticized being an elitist until people actually heard him or read what he had to say. That is to say they thought he was an elitist because he was so educated. And this is actually one of Wilson's great strengths, which is that whenever he delivered a speech, he never spoke down to the people. He never dumbed down his vocabulary. He never changed his thought process to, quote, reach more voters. He didn't take straw polls. He said what was on his mind, and he spoke as though everybody was an educated man who could understand him. And here was the wonderful thing about Wilson. Everybody did understand him, and everybody felt a little better about themselves, especially the, the least educated, because they did understand him, and they understood his passion and they understood that he was genuinely looking out for them. So the ideas of his elitism evaporated very quickly, I would say really within the first few months of his being in office. And as you point out, he was one of the last presidents to really take on responsibility for writing his own speeches, that when he spoke, it was, was Wilson speaking. Well, exactly, and not one of. He was the last president who wrote every speech that he gave. And I mean literally wrote, this is uh, somebody who as a teenager learned shorthand and shortly after that learned how to type. And so for the rest of Wilson's life, whenever he had an important speech to give, including the most important speech, the one you alluded to in your introduction about making the world safe for democracy, he would close himself in a room with a, with a stenographer's pad and write the first draft in shorthand. Then he would sit at a little manual typewriter and type it up, and then he would redraft it in pen and ink and retype it himself. And so this was a man who, who did write his own speeches when he wrote them. 
And I should say that most of the speeches he delivered, and I'm talking about hundreds of campaign speeches and even some very important policy speeches, he would deliver off the cuff. This was a man who would show up with a note card with five bullet points, and he could talk extemporaneously for almost an hour without a single grammatical error, without a sentence out of place, without a paragraph that didn't lead to the next. One of the other aspects that's so interesting about Wilson on the domestic front is that he talked a lot about, and you write about, his idea of cooperating with Congress, that, that he wanted Congress and the executive branch to work together, and yet so much of his agenda and what he created with respect to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Trade Commission and other organizations in many ways took power away from Congress. Talk a little about that. Well, that's quite right. He felt, being a constitutional scholar, that the government had become out of whack, that through the 19th century and by the early 20th century, the Congress had really accrued so much, too much power. And the presidency, with the exception of Teddy Roosevelt before him, who had begun to bring this back, had really receded. Being a constitutional scholar, Wilson also knew that the presidency was the least defined office in that document. And his feeling was, basically, the president can do anything he wants to do until somebody says he can't. You know, I mean, he kept it legal, of course. But that being said, Wilson really wanted to expand the power the president had. But it wasn't for himself, really. It was, as you suggested, that he felt the two branches should be quite equal. He felt the presidency, the executive branch, and the legislative branch should cooperate. And I mean that quite literally. They should cooperate the government. And it behooved the president, he felt, to come up with an agenda and present the ideas he thought the American people wanted and needed. And then he felt he had to work with the Congress to make them enact them, to, to understand those things. And he did that in a, in a number of ways the country had never seen before, um, starting with the fact that Wilson would show up in Congress um, you know, I have often said Wilson really didn't want to be president. He would have preferred to have been prime minister of the United States. <laughs> so he tried to tried to turn the government almost into a parliamentary system as much as he could. And that involved his showing up to deliver the State of the Union address, which no president had done for more than a century. And he called joint sessions of Congress whenever he had an important measure he wanted them to pass. And he, he had a sustained dialogue with the Congress at all times. Even when there was vehement disagreement, and there often was, there was at least conversation happening. Talk a little bit about the fact that Wilson came to office not thinking he was going to have to deal much with foreign policy. That was, was out of his wheelhouse initially. It was completely out of his wheelhouse. Uh, now, here's an instance in which he was a rather cloistered academician with a good understanding of domestic issues. Um, he had traveled a little abroad, but, you know, he arrived in office in 1913. The world was pretty quiet just then. It was fairly peaceful. Um, obviously, a lot of things were bubbling beneath the surface, but the United States was still a 
an isolationist country protected by an ocean on each side uh, with an army, a standing army, you know, the size of Portugal's. Um, and it looked like we were in for a period of rather quiet contentment, not having to worry about what went on in the rest of the world. Um, a year later, um, an assass assassination in Europe, of course, set off a whole series of events, and within a month or two, the entire world was at war. So now, suddenly, this man who said it would be a great irony of fate if I had to deal with foreign affairs would spend the bulk of his administration dealing with just that. And the bulk of the first term with respect to foreign affairs was really spent trying to keep the U.S. out of the war. Well, precisely right. You know, there's one thing one has to bear in mind, and I've, I've tried to make this very clear in, in my biography of Wilson, which is you have to bear in mind the personal side of a president. Woodrow Wilson was born in 1856 in Virginia and grew up in four states of the Confederacy. He remembered the Civil War. He remembered Reconstruction. He saw the vast devastation that happened in that region of the country. He saw it wiped out, not just economically, but, but emotionally. So he carried those wounds with him. So much so that when World War I broke out, he did everything humanly, presidentially possible to keep this country out of that war. He, he just knew how disastrous it could be. And yet it, it ultimately became, or so it seemed, inevitable. And he then spent a year or two leading us into the war. And then, of course, we were actively in the war from 1917 in the spring until its conclusion in November of 1918. Talk a little bit about his thought processes that led to, to realizing that we were going to have to engage. Well, it began, of course, with a series of, of attacks on neutral ships or British ships by the Germans, who had a very active program of torpedoing. Uh, meantime, the British were trying to enforce a blockade, trying to keep food and other necessities from reaching Germany. So that war was going on in his heart of hearts. Wilson sensed we were going to end up in this war, and he certainly believed that the Germans were the villains. But he made it very clear in the beginning to Americans, to Americans that we were neutral, and he asked the country to remain even neutral in thought, despite that human impossibility. But gradually, as the Germans kept sinking ships, as American lives were lost, starting in a big way with the Lusitania, and then in another dozen ships, and then the Germans announcing they were no longer going to uh, stop themselves from torpedoing even neutral ships in their territory, which meant American ships, it just became impossible to resist, and the country, through Wilson's rhetoric over a year or two, had really engaged the American imagination and gotten us emotionally ready for the war, such that by the time he appeared at a joint session of Congress in April of 1917 to deliver the 
famous speech, The World Must Be Made Safe for Democracy, the country really was ready. And he got just a tumultuous ovation. Uh, and, and then, for me, one of the most touching things, which almost never appears in a biography of Woodrow Wilson, and this is what I've tried to do, is humanize this man. After that incredible speech, the incredible reaction, Wilson and his wife quietly drive back to the White House, where Wilson goes into his office, puts his head down on the table, and just sobs. Because he knew he had just signed the death warrants of hundreds of thousands of American boys, and it just pained him. Again, it all goes back to his Civil War childhood. And within that context, to what extent did Wilson, in order to make that commitment, have to understand it and see this in very moral terms, and see it in very Manichaean terms, as opposed to what we might consider today a more real politic view? I think that's exactly right. And you've hit on really the main pressure point, I think, in in Woodrow Wilson's administration, and basically it is his most lasting legacy, because here we are over a hundred years later still using Wilsonian principles. And that is Woodrow Wilson's morality. He was a deeply moral man. He was the son and grandson of Presbyterian ministers, and there were another dozen ministers in the family tree there. And it was Wilson who realized that the United States had, had reached a position of greatness or potential greatness. And with that greatness comes a certain amount of responsibility. And within that, Wilson decided that a moral component must be added to American foreign policy. And so when he says the world must be made safe for democracy, again, whether we like it or not, he was suggesting that we had to sometimes defend human rights issues, even when they don't affect us directly, because they affect mankind. In your view, as you've looked at this, why has that had such resonance? Because it was an almost unique concept, the idea of foreign policy driven by this deep sense of morality. Well... Uh, I, I think for, for Wilson, this was a no-brainer, um, and I, I mean that almost literally. It was something he really didn't even have to think about so much as just something he inherently felt, something he knew. And I, you know, there were times that he felt he was placed on earth, placed in the White House for divine purposes. And this was one of them, and if you begin to go through all his foreign policy, even before he made this speech, when we were involved in incursions in Mexico and Haiti and Nicaragua, and none of those was a tremendous success, I should add. I mean, we ended up in Haiti and Nicaragua for, for decades. But they all had this sense of what was right, and it was, of course, what was right according to Woodrow Wilson. In retrospect, well, as you pointed out again in your introduction, um, here we are debating Syria as other presidents have recently debated Afghanistan and Iraq or Vietnam. 
what is America's role in, in all these conflagrations? Um, sometimes Wilsonianism is a good thing. Sometimes it is a bad thing. How did Wilson square this sense of morality with his views about race? I mean, as you pointed out, uh-huh. he, he grew up in, in the South. He, he lived in four Confederate states. His views on race were, were hardly progressive and in some ways seemed somewhat inconsistent with this moral streak. So it seems, and I, I think you're, you're exactly right. Uh, I don't think he ever completely reconciled it himself. Uh, as you point out, the Southern background certainly led to what we have to call in 2013 racism. I honestly believe, though, going through lots of speeches and newspapers and diaries from a hundred years ago, that Woodrow Wilson in his day was really something of a centrist, I should add. You know, this was a time when when men sat in Congress and on the Supreme Court who were members of the Ku Klux Klan, and not in any hidden way. They were rather proud of it. I mean, this is simply who they were. Now, that being said, yes, Woodrow Wilson, the great progressive, I think was quite regressive on the matter of race uh, in that he did introduce Jim Crow segregation into the federal offices uh, in Washington, D.C., in the post office and the treasury in particular. And that, of course, sanctioned racism everywhere throughout the country, at least anywhere a state wanted to enact it. Uh, Wilson, I would say, I honestly don't believe was a virulent racist. I don't think he had a problem with African Americans. Uh, in fact, African Americans voted for him in the first election because they thought they had their greatest opportunities to advance under a Southern president mm. and under someone so enlightened as Woodrow Wilson appeared to be. What Wilson as a Southerner, though, realized was, or what he felt, I should say, is that the country simply wasn't ready to integrate. He, having grown up in the South, knew that it was just an impossibility just 50 years after the Civil War, when there were still millions of people uh, from the South especially who, who remembered the war, lived through the war, lost relatives in the war, it was an impossibility for those people to accept the fact that well, perhaps a white woman might have to work under a black man. Mm. Uh, it was just unfathomable to a whole society that had existed for hundreds of years. So Wilson often said he believed in integration. I take him at his word. He just didn't believe the country was ready, as he said, for another generation or probably two which would put America sort of in the mid-50s, mm-hmm. which is exactly when it, when it really did happen, when, when, quote, integration broke out, when separate but equal was no longer the law of the land, as it was in Woodrow Wilson's presidency. I want to talk about the, the League of Nations, Wilson's reaction after the devastation and the horror of the First World War. Again, how his sense of morality drove him to create this idea, the 14 points, the idea for the League of Nations, and, and to prevent these kind of wars in the future. Talk a little bit about that, and, and how he squared that with what he saw the French and the British doing in terms of dividing up the world in the post-war period. 
Yes, well, this is, of course, the essence of, of Wilson's life and his presidency. And that is, Wilson, who so didn't want us to get into the war, finally, in his own mind, I think, justified it and enabled it and encouraged it because he believed perhaps in going to the war we could draft the peace. And as part of the drafting, he came up with his famous 14 points, the 14th of which was a League of Nations, a rather quixotic ideal, the notion that every country could sit at a giant table and hash out the problems before they went to war. That's basically what the League was, that as soon as there was a skirmish or as soon as there was a disagreement, you'd bring it to the League table and discuss it. And in so doing, Wilson believed that perhaps what became World War I would truly have been the war to end all wars. So that, in his mind, was the proper justification to go to war, and that's why when he went over to Paris for the peace talks to draw up the treaty, and I should add here, the President of the United States left the country for six months. He was gone in Paris, working on this document. When he got there, he discovered that all the other countries, two dozen other nations in on this treaty, had their own agendas, their own their own grab bag, really. They were looking for reparations. They were looking for territory. They were looking for money. The United States was the only one that went there that wasn't looking for territory or treasure. The United States was simply looking for an enactment of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Ultimately, Wilson wanted just one thing. He wanted to bring home a League of Nations. That was it. He put all his eggs in that basket to the point that he even made a couple of compromises in the end that were not very good ones just to get his League. And he justified that by saying to the world that even though this treaty isn't perfect, at least the League will be there, and that can work out the imperfections. And in the next few years, we can take care of that. But the larger concept, a League of Nations, will be in place, and indeed, we will have fought the war to end all wars. Was he naive? Did he, in, in, in his fixation on getting the League of Nations, did he miss other things that were part of the treaty, other things that, that particularly the French and the British wanted, that in many ways set the stage for what would become the Second World War? Well, I'm not sure he was naive. Uh, you're correct about the fixation, though. So he may have been a little blind, uh, but it wasn't naivete. Uh, but he was certainly driven uh, that on the idea that he would give up anything in order to get that league. As it turns out, the French and the British really wanted to punish Germany much more than the treaty did. Mm -hmm. uh, Wilson really was the great leveling factor there. He was the one who kept saying to the French and the British, especially the French, Georges Clemenceau, he kept saying, if you come down too hard, if you try to exact too much revenge, there will be another war in 25 years, refighting everything we've just fought. And if you look at the calendar, Wilson got that almost to the minute. Um, and that is what happened, uh, despite Wilson's best efforts. 
So I think he came back with the best treaty he could, uh, fighting off, as I said, 23 other nations uh, to get what he got. Uh, but in the end, he faced an even bigger battle at home. There's so much about Wilson's personal life that we don't have time for, but what I do want to talk about is Wilson's place in history, because for so long he was rated very high among our presidents, and then over the years it waned a bit. And talk a little bit about that and, and why perceptions of Wilson have changed. I think you're exactly right. I mean, for decades he was really right after Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. Um, he was you know, generally considered the fourth or fifth great, greatest president. I think as we hit the end of the 20th century, people began to re-examine uh, his record on race. And also during the war, he imposed great suppression on the press, uh, reenacted the Alien and Sedition Acts, he claimed he had done nothing more than Adams and Lincoln had before him. But in retrospect, for the great progressive to have done those things, I think brought him down a notch. Uh, many suddenly moved him from the great to the near great category. All that being said, I think there's another factor, and, and I don't mean this to sound self-serving, but I, I don't think Wilson has ever really had a humanizing biography before. And I think largely because he was an academic himself, most of the books about him have been very starchy and academic and tough to read, and they made him look like nothing more than a rather dour Presbyterian minister's son. And in truth, this was a real full-blooded guy, a really passionate, emotional man who literally gave his life to fight for a cause. Uh, and that main cause, of course, was the League of Nations. And, and I think in retrospect, uh, here we are in 2013, and I believe we live very much in Woodrow Wilson's world. Our foreign policy is almost entirely Woodrow Wilson's. I mean, President Obama, that speech last week, he was literally channeling Woodrow Wilson. There were almost sentences lifted from Woodrow Wilson. He was certainly asking all the questions Woodrow Wilson raised a century ago. Our economic policy really grows out of Woodrow Wilson's, um, starting with the growth of the modern income tax and the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. Again, oh, that, was, that was pure Woodrow Wilson. He did those things. And when you look at women's rights and even the role of race, uh, you know, while Wilson was not good on it in his day, a lot of it strangely laid the pipe for the reaction in the 50s that really led to where we are today, which is far from perfect, but it's at least a start. So again, whether you like him or not, agree with him or disagree with him, he's with us. I mean, Wilson is part of our daily lives. The, the other aspect that was very Wilsonian, in many ways it played out with respect to foreign events last week, is this sense that you didn't need to have a knee-jerk reaction to everything, that he believed very much in giving things time to play out, that, that things would become clearer if they had some time to breathe. You're exactly right about this. And I had, you know, I had the identical reaction watching President Obama during the last few weeks, and 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 listening to the speech, the 
the value of hesitation. And I know a lot of Obama's opponents were going after him for that, accusing him of being weak, just as Wilson's opponents had done the same and accused him of being weak, especially Teddy Roosevelt, who really came down very hard on Woodrow Wilson. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes things can happen if you give things a little time. I mean, who knew that Russia might suddenly start to talk to Syria and come up with a plan together that might, that might save the day? We haven't seen the end of it. Nobody is being naive about it, that this is the magic pill, but it might just prove to be a solution. So why not try every possible solution? And that, again, as you pointed out, is extremely Wilsonian. That notion of pursuing every conceivable diplomatic option before you go to war. Scott Berg, his book is Wilson. It is just out from Putnam. Scott, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I thank you. It's really interesting for me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 